great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and it's a real pleasure today to welcome our distinguished guest, Professor Louise Malander, Professor of Law at Queen's and the Legacy Theme Lead at the Mitchell Institute. Louise, I wanted to start by asking you about your important book, Amnesty, Human Rights and Political Transitions, and your wider academic work on amnesties. I know that since that book, you've done further projects on the subject. Could you tell us something about that work? Certainly. Um, the book that I wrote a few years ago was based on some empirical work I was doing, where I tried to compile a database of all the amnesty laws I could find around the world. I was motivated by a sense that much of the amnesty literature when I started was dominated by either the amnesty laws used in South America during or after the military dictatorships there, or the South African experience of amnesty. And while I think both sets of examples, which are very different from each other, are really interesting, I felt they didn't perhaps paint a full picture of how amnesties are used. Also, as someone who came from a political science background into law, I was quite, you know, I could see differences between political scientists who felt amnesties were necessary for conflict mediation and negotiation, and lawyers who were much more concerned about the uh, relationship between amnesties and emerging international law standards. And so I undertook that work to try and document how amnesties were used, to identify patterns in their use, and to understand more about what, how international law was evolving on the question, because of course state practice is in itself a form of customary international law. Um, the, bu- the book, I think, was useful. It provided an account that hadn't existed previously around what amnesties are used for. And I think it took a much broader perspective on the multiple purposes that they are used not just for combatants, but also to in, for draft dodgers and deserters, for refugees, for individuals who are accused of security offences that perhaps have not been involved in any wrongdoing. There's a whole set of ways in which amnesties are used to address problems related to conflict. After the book was um, completed, I then worked on a number of different amnesty-related projects. So one of the more exciting ones for me was uh, bringing together a group of international experts, both academics in different disciplines and also practitioners who've worked at different levels, you know, been on National Truth Commissions, been in the UN's International Law Commission and a variety of other regional perspectives, bringing them together and we worked to draft what, what became known as the Belfast Guidelines and Amnesty and Accountability and that was intended to be a as a set of guidelines for states or civil society actors or jurists who were grappling with how amnesties could be used in different settings. Um, my, I think my book and my database are one influential source for that, but of course it drew on a whole multiplicity of sources and the expertise of the group as a whole. That guideline project, they were published a few years ago, they've since been translated into a number of languages and we, we translated them into the main UN languages, but after that other actors have taken it and translated it into Ukrainian, Portuguese, Malay, Thai. So you can see there's a broad appetite for it and we've seen it be cited in UN reports and reports in different truth commissions in different countries and in different um, zones that are grappling with conflict it's been a useful tool for negotiators. So for example, the head of the transitional justice team in the negotiations between the Colombian government and FARC has given public lectures saying this was the most useful tool for her team. So I was 
really pleased to think about how what it began as kind of quite, a, quite an academic personal interest of mine could then emerge into something which is quite useful to actors in different parts of the world. And since then, I've continued with the database work as well. So I've been working with the um, Political Settlements Research Programme at the University of Edinburgh as part of a project funded by David um, to update and edit the Amnesty database. And that has now been published and put online last year. And that's been quite an interesting exercise to see how state practice has emerged since the book has come out and what, what changes were seen in, in what states are doing. And as you say there, Louise, it's academic work, but with a very societally facing practical dimension to it. Amnesties have become topical and contentious in relation to Northern Ireland recently with the UK government's proposals on legacy and effectively a proposal about an amnesty with regard to the Northern Ireland troubles. From your expert perspective, what would be your views and analysis of, of those proposals and their possible effects? Well, what has been proposed by the, the British government in the recent command paper is they, they use the term statute limitations. They say a statute of limitations that will apply equally to all troubles related offences. That language is not qualified in any way in the command paper, so we interpret that to mean something that will cover serious human rights violations that will apply both to paramilitaries and former state forces. So it's a very broad measure. And beyond that, it's intended to have incredibly sweeping legal effects. It would immediately close down all current and future criminal proceedings, civil remedies, coronial, coronial inquests, and police ombudsman investigations. Uh, from a legal perspective, I would view those proposals as has been highly unlikely to be found to be in compliance with the UK's obligations under international human rights law. The European Court of Human Rights has repeatedly found that where uh, there have been violations of the right to life and the prohibition on torture, states have an obligation to conduct effective investigations. This statute of limitations measure will close down all existing a judicial and police-led means of conducting an effective investigation and would replace them with something much, much weaker, an information recovery body that would only have the power to access documents, wouldn't have any other powers to, to interrogate, to seize documents, to compel testimony, any of the other things that might feature in, in an effective investigative process. So from a legal perspective, this process is not going to be, these proposals are not going to be legally compliant. From my own perspective as someone who's looked at amnesty laws around the world, I used my existing database research to put this into a broader perspective. And what we found was that what the UK government is proposing goes far beyond amnesties used in other parts of the world. So it's unusual to, to grant an amnesty to state actors. Only 25% of the amnesties from 1990 do that. It's relatively unusual for amnesties to be unconditional, as the command paper one appears to be. Only 37% of amnesties do that. Um, most amnesties contain some crimes that are excluded, perhaps serious human rights violations, perhaps crimes committed for personal gain. Nothing is excluded from the command paper proposals. And then going beyond that, um, I could only find 6% of amnesties that explicitly exclude civil remedies. I could not find any that closed down coronial inquests or other forms of investigations. So this goes much, much further in the forms of impunity that's trying to create than any other amnesty I've looked at. And I think, interestingly as well, this has been proposed 23 years into our peace process. I, I have, can't find any other amnesties introduced that long after a peace agreement has been reached. I could only find two that have been introduced more than five years after an agreement. 
One um, was introduced in Portugal for less serious crimes. Uh, the other was introduced in Peru in 2010 and did cover serious human rights violations, but it only lasted 15 days. It was withdrawn in the face of international and domestic pressure. So I think these proposals are likely to be illegal and would likely make the United Kingdom, which prides itself in being a democratic and ruling full state, it's likely to make it a out, considerable outlier on the international stage. Thank you very much. In addition to your own individual work, Louise, you're also, as I mentioned, the, the theme lead for Legacy at the Mitchell Institute. And one of the things that the Institute does is bring together scholars from different disciplines in interdisciplinary ways, potentially to shape future agendas, to think about the ways in which we should in future think about major issues like Legacy. Could you say something about that aspect of your work and your understanding of the kind of things that the Institute can do in that area which you lead on? Certainly. And I think the Mitchell Institute provides a wonderful forum for scholars from different disciplines who are interested in questions of peace building to come together. And I think that's really important considering the global challenges that the fellows attached to the Institute are investigating. So just to give an example of what I mean by that, the UN Sustainable Development Goals set out what are thought of as some of the most pressing global challenges we face as humanity today. Uh, sustainable Development Goal number 16 expresses commitments to reduce violence, to provide access to justice and to build to fully accountable institutions. Now, as someone working in a law school, if I approach that question, I might come at it from a very legalistic perspective. I might have the assumption that criminal prosecutions will, de will deter future violence, will bring conflict to an end, and what that what is needed to to ensure access to justice is a building of the capacity of the criminal justice infrastructure within each society and that in itself would almost be sufficient to guarantee that. I think the value of thinking about these questions together with scholars from other disciplines like anthropology, criminology and sociology is that it, it makes lawyers interrogate some really thorny questions. You know, do trials really deter criminality, particularly when we're talking about systematic human rights violations? Does the criminal law, as it's currently written, capture the range of harms which are carried out in conflict settings? What's, what's missing from that? And I think it's clear that there have been, over recent centuries, periods of profound violence. Different forms have been carried out that have not been touched by the criminal law. Thinking of colonialism, but in Rhode Island you could think of the legacies of institutional abuse as well. So there's many ways in which the criminal law is not necessarily a good tool for capturing what needs to be addressed. I think also there's good reason to question the extent to which trials deliver a sense of justice to victims. On many occasions the criminal proceedings aren't designed in a way that's victim-centred. Also, I think anthropologists in particular challenge us to think about how do victims understand justice? What does justice look like for them? What are the harms that they've experienced and what is most important for them in rebuilding their lives? And is law a way of doing that? Or are there other processes alongside law that could be valuable as well? And I think I'm particularly interested in the moment but thinking about how at times legal processes can serve to reinforce impunity in different ways through the things that they look at and through the things that they do not. And within that exciting agenda that you had a break there, Louise, can you tell people something about your own current and future research projects and the agenda that Professor Malander herself is going to be following in terms of that work? Um, I think in the coming years it's probably 
uh, four different strands of what I'm working on at the moment. So one project that's just coming to an end, so it was a nice feeling, is uh, a project I've been working on with two institute fellows, Karen McAvoy and Anna Bryson, um, on the role of lawyers in transitional societies. So we have written a book on that and I'll be coming out with Cambridge University Press in January, so I'm looking forward to seeing the final version. Um, also, the Northern Ireland work that you've already discussed, that I think that's going to be an ongoing um, area of work for me for and for my colleagues in the, yeah, in the Institute for a number of years to come. Uh, at the moment, the British government has indicated that it plans to introduce legislation to Parliament uh, in the coming year to implement its proposals on dealing with the past. And if that does happen, I imagine we'll all have a role to play in scrutinising those proposals, providing expert commentary on them, uh, trying to ensure that any approach to the past is done in a manner that complies with the rule of law and human rights. And if we ever get to the stage where those institutions are set up, I think there'll be a lot of work to do in terms of monitoring how they're operating as well. In addition to that, I think I'll be continuing my amnesty research. I have a book chapter due soon um, for an excellent second edition of an excellent edited collection. Uh, developed by two of our institute fellows, Cheryl Lothar and Luke Moffat. It's a collection on transitional justice. And I plan to uh, continue working on my database through my collaboration with PSRP. And I hope that I'll be returning to your monograph that I've been working on rather sporadically over the last number of years. So it's, it's in progress, but it keeps getting pushed to one side for the deadlines. But it's intended to go drill down a little bit further than my previous research has done. My previous research has looked at um, all forms of amnesty that are used in response to political crises. What this book will do is look more particularly at amnesties in response to armed conflict and only at amnesties that have a bearing on serious crimes and international human rights, uh, uh, crime, serious violations and um, international crimes. And I think that's important because at present, 75% of the amnesties introduced around the world relate to conflict, but much of the jurisprudence and much of the analysis borrows from amnesties that have been introduced in dictatorial settings. Where judges have started to consider amnesties in conflict settings, they suggest that those contexts could be somewhat different. And of course, in existing international law, we have Article 6.5 of Additional Article 2 to the Geneva Conventions, which says at the end of hostilities, states should grant the widest possible amnesty. And so I think it's something that hasn't been explored enough, and so that's something I, I would plan to draw down on that book. And then finally, I'm hoping to start what I think might be a longer term, more interdisciplinary research agenda around um, the concept of impunity. I'm conscious that in the world in recent years, there's a sense that impunity has risen, that many states are moving away from the rule of law. This has been covered in the media a bit the past year because there's been a lot of public statements led by um, David Miliband, the CEO of the International Rescue Committee, proclaiming renown in the age of impunity. So there's a, a growing global problem there. And I think that from my work on amnesties, much of the anti-impunity campaigns have focused on limiting the scope of amnesties or trying to overturn pre-existing amnesties. But in societies where that has happened, that impunity has still endured. So it seems that that measure might, might be important is not in itself sufficient to tackle the, the, the more profound roots of some of, the, some of the problems of impunity. So what I plan to do as an interim step is to try and have a more interdisciplinary understanding of what does impunity mean. 
recommend this not from just looking at law, but thinking at it more broadly, what does this look like, what are its dimensions? And then beyond that, I want to try and get into what you've worked with starts looking at the current mechanisms we're using to tackle impunity and what more can be done. Louise, you've set out brilliantly for us a range of really important aspects of your work, individual scholarship, past, present and future, societally facing influential work which does shape a better set of communities and better set of societal responses to global challenges. The interdisciplinary work that you're leading at the Institute is incredibly important and the ways in which Queen's University Belfast, through what people like you are doing, can make a difference in society uh, within and beyond the university. I hope people will follow up and look at the publications of Professor Malander, engage with the work and learn from it. And for her insights today, thank you very much to my colleague, Professor Louise Malander. <laughs>